Hello everyone, my name is Pratik Singh. I am the CEO and founder of LearnApp.com. If you want to learn trading, investing or personal finance, then head on to LearnApp. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Zerodha Educate. You're in for a treat. To say this year has been a roller coaster ride for the markets would be an understatement. We saw a dramatic fall and an even dramatic recovery as all economic data indicated we were in serious trouble. So we wanted to make sense of the disconnect between the real economy and the stock market and how investors should look at investing going forward. So I caught up with Anand Krishnan, the Chief Investment Officer of Franklin Templeton, India, in this absolutely brilliant and wide-ranging conversation. You'll be surprised how well Anand explains the journey of what happens in an economy and the markets, and he even decodes major economic concerns for India and the globe. So please enjoy my conversation with Anand. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast. We're going to talk about equity. That's macro. We're going to talk about markets. We're also going to talk about how investors should invest in the current times. And with us, we have Anand Radhakrishnan from Franklin Mutual Fund. I'm Pratik Singh. I'll be hosting today's session. I am the CEO of LearnApp. So if you want to learn anything about investing or trading, head on to learnapp.com. It's the only place you can actually learn properly. So first, we're going to start and get some information from the macroeconomic side. My first question to Anand is going to be, what's your reading of the Indian economic situation right now? I mean, are we in trouble? And what are the probable scenarios that you see playing out in the future? Uh, thanks, Pratik, for having me here. And um, there are two ways or, to look at the current uh, economic scenario. One is uh, the medium term long-term, medium-term trend, another one is a shorter-term situation. If you really look at it from a very, very short period of time, yes, we are in trouble. We have gone through a, a meaningful shrinkage, fall in uh, economic activity, if you may call it so. Whether in, in an economy, typically, there are two or three kinds of uh, broad activities. One is people buy and sell things. We call it consumption. And then people invest, create large projects, infrastructure, and other capital expenditure kind of spending. We call it as an investment spending. And then there is a third thing called government, which uh, again spends money on economic social activities. So we call it, so these are the three pillars of an economy, consumption, investment, and government. We have seen uh, meaningful shrinkage in both uh, consumption, not necessarily on staples. Staples are things which are needed for your day-to-day -day living. We haven't seen a big uh, fall in consumption of that, but discretionary. That is where people can postpone their spending. For example, if you want to buy a car, do you want it today or do you want it tomorrow? You can decide that you can want it tomorrow. Or you want to buy a home. Do you want it now or you want it after a month or uh, so? So that things are called consum uh, discretionary consumption. Whereas what do you want today, like a soap, shampoo, or biscuit, yeah. or noodles, yeah, or anything that is required for today's sustenance is called staples. So staples have not shrunk within consumption, but it is a discretionary part of consumption, which has taken a big knock. Similarly, on the investment side, uh, there are two kinds of investments. People buy uh, homes, which is, a, which, is a, which is a big investment per se, which is again taken a knock. 
whereas a government building infrastructure is also an investment which has not taken a big knock uh, in the current situation. So there are, again, I would say the cup is half empty there and half full uh, in investment as well. So, so if you look at it, therefore, it's not as if the entire economic activity has gone for a toss. Right. There are aspects of economy which are engine, economic engine, which are still running. And uh, I think once the, uh, the COVID-related uncertainties slowly fade or, or there is a so medical solution that is found, some of the discretionary aspects of the economic activity will come back pretty strong. So the short-term situation is that it is impacted by COVID and it will therefore bounce back. But if you really ask me where the real challenges are, it is actually in the medium to longer term. India is rediscovering its own economic uh, situation within the world, which was dominated by, on one side, Western economies like US, and on the other side, emerging economies like China. India's place was somewhere forgotten, and uh, it had not ex exercised itself as a very big economic power. But I think that big challenge for India will be on the medium to longer term is to get its rightful place in terms of economic position and power within the global economic scenario. It can be through higher exports from India, both uh, services exports as well as manufacturing exports. It can be more, more inventions, more spending on R&D. There are various ways India can uh, you know, come into an economic highlight within the global scenario. I think there we have long way to go, both in terms of um, you know, doing things right, building the pillars better, and making the business ease of doing businesses better, deregulating many industries. And those kind of challenges are still there. So my short answer to your question, therefore, is cyclical challenges will get addressed over the next three, four quarters. Whereas structurally, economically, we need to do a lot more. Right, that, that, that makes sense. You said something about consumption taking a hit in the shorter term, right? Especially for discretionary spends. Now, if we zoom out a little bit, a lot of people have talked about the government and RBI doing stuff for uh, liquidity, doing actually there's plenty of liquidity, but doing stuff for stimulus, as they say. What's your take on this? A lot of debate around has RBI actually done enough? So in the simplest layman terms, have we really done enough to support the economy? Has the RBI done enough? And do we have enough money to steer out of the economy in case there is another dip uh, assuming something goes wrong over, say, the medium or short term. So when you talk about stimulus, there are two broad kind of stimulus. One is called monetary stimulus. Another one is called fiscal stimulus. Monetary stimulus is very easy to understand because um, it is the availability of money and the cost of money. We call it credit availability and credit costs, which uh, in any economy, any borrower will be subject to. For a very long time, India was running a very high interest rate regime because of high inflation. Mm. There are inefficiencies, not too many lenders, too many borrowers, too fewer lenders. So entire bargaining power was with the lending system. Even now it is like that, but it is improving. So because of that, everyone had to borrow at very high interest rates. But now I think over the last two years, what we have seen is that there is a marked shift between the in the central bank's approach towards uh, stimulating the economy monetarily. 
from an extremely tight situation they have become very uh, accommodative as we call it accommodative accommodative means they want to create more credit growth and they want to also bring down the cost of borrowing money for people because one of the big thing india is uh, struggling with is its exorbitant cost of borrowing when compared to other emerging markets in developed economies if you want to buy a home you will get at a very low interest rate 3% 3.5 now i don't know the current rates but probably it's pretty low even lower than that whereas in india even today if you want to buy a mortgage borrow a mortgage loan it is around 8 and a quarter percent so there is a 5% difference between uh, borrowing cost in india versus in let's say in uh, in china or in uh, us etc the benefit of a very low interest cost is that you can you can afford bigger things better things if for the same amount of monthly emi you can buy a better car or a better home if uh, if interest rates are half so for example your ability to to pay an emi monthly emi is 10000 rupees sure if the interest rates are if the interest rates are 10% you may have you may be able to afford only um uh, let's say uh, you know a 3 lakh rupees car whereas if the interest rate is 5% you may be able to afford a 6 lakh rupees car yeah, or so a 7 lakh it goes car. up that's right so it, it either the the quality of consumption goes up the volume of consumption goes up and uh, instead of buying one thing people may buy two because mm-hmm. cost of borrowing is half uh, so these are very important for an economy to so uh, to run well so we call it again uh, in technical jargon real interest rates that right. is nominal rates minus inflation if real rates are very high it is very tough for borrowers that means that the inflation is not uh, inflation is not compensating for the cost of borrowing enough uh, so many economies now the real inflation real interest rates have gone negative for india also it is now going n- gradually towards negative i think that is very um, important that co- real cost of borrowing has to be low so the monetary part of the stimulus is beginning to work but again there are a lot of challenges banks and the financial institutions are st- still not able to pass on the benefits fully well to the borrowers uh, per se but we have a long way to go there but i think directionally we are uh, doing fine it's the other stimulus is where we it's a fiscal stimulus fiscal stimulus is essentially what government give there are two ways you can stimulate an economy fiscally one is put money in the hands of people more money the only way you can put more money in the hands of people is to cut taxes what the money that government is taking from the people Reduced. you don't take it you give it back to them in the form of tax cuts now uh, like if you in us if you have seen uh, there were a lot of tax cuts even in india we have seen corporate rate tax cut last mm-hmm. year um so that is one methodology the other method is government spending a lot of money run a big deficit they borrow from future they borrow more money and spend on things that they think will create a lot of impact in the economy and create jobs etc so either you give money in the hands of people or you yourself spend that money i think in neither in neither of these cases i think india has done that 
bigger job if you look at the stimulus package which is given 80 90% of the stimulus package is monetary stimulus correct only 10% of the package is uh, fiscal stimulus so i think at some point indian government will have to put more money in the hands of people maybe that will involve little bit of shrinkage of government's uh, own monetary uh, base or their own spending but if they do that like cut in gst or cut in personal income taxes giving more tax benefits for uh, if you want to buy a home currently let's say government gives you certain annual tax deductions it can give more right if instead of giving 2 lakh rupees uh, uh, deductible against your income i can give you 4 lakh rupees uh, annual deduction and then and then it becomes cheaper for you to buy a home so there are my and many number of ways government can stimulate the economy as of now i think they are it is slightly below expectations what they are doing so that was a really nice uh, explanation on i thought you will give a one two line explanation of whether they did well or not but you went uh, really step by step explaining what this is and super super nice so going back to the first part when you talked about real interest rates becoming negative right um so another way that could happen is that inflation could actually increase right now yes. uh if you look at post 2008 now everyone loves doing this back analysis right so <laughs> it never happens but i have to ask this question so 2008 after the crash happened and the recovery happened uh we had uh, inflation going up uh what do you <laughs> what do you think is going to happen this time do you think uh inflation would go up or uh, if it would not what would the reasons uh that it would stay depressed i mean what's your, what's your view here it's an interesting question uh, again inflation has two law two big drivers globally speaking one is called manufacturing inflation and other one is called services inflation so manufacturing inflation is when something is in short supply uh, the price of those goods go up uh, i think truly and genuinely manufacturing inflation has died a long time back globally it is an era of abundance there are abundant amount of uh, natural resources uh, and there are more efficient way of using natural resources mm-hmm. so many of the commodity prices are not going up that well there is abundant capacity in cars steel computers etc so i think uh, truly in uh, speaking the inflation on the manufactured goods industrial goods is a thing of the past and the uh, world is learning to manufacture these things more efficiently also with less uh, material mm-hmm. less resource intensive cars are becoming more fuel efficient means you are going to burn less oil right. similarly you know uh, if you are uh, if you are using less steel in construction the demand for steel also gets moderated so uh, people are getting more efficient in the way they utilize uh, these things and that is uh and there is also reasonable capacity globally on most goods so i don't see therefore there is a huge risk of uh, manufacturing inflation and then there are second kind of risk is what is called services uh, inflation which is predominantly manpower related for example if there is a shortage of teachers in the in in an economy yeah the price of uh, their services will go up like what you are doing a learning app is actually you are essentially disrupting the teachers market uh in the sense you are automating it you are bringing technology to it 
you are putting it on a platform which means what if there is a shortage of teacher there is a way to uh compensate for it there is a way to leverage technology to play that game like that in everywhere there is a bit of automation is happening and therefore reducing the pressure on wages as well for example in us us has been in full employment for a long time despite this covid thing again the employment is slowly improving right but pre covid us was near full employment but wages never went up the reason was uh, this was uh, there was innovative ways in which companies and businesses were figuring out to to get more of people and also not uh, ensure that it is, doesn't come at the uh, at a very high cost kind of a thing so again therefore the wage there are various pushes and pulls to the argument but uh, but the thing is the wage inflation is also pretty moderate globally so if you really ask me global outlook for inflation is extremely benign and therefore one can foresee for a long period of time interest rates also to remain benign that was uh, that was a really cool link you made between scale technology and efficiency uh, being an enemy to inflation so i think that was uh, that was really really cool let's move on to markets now anand shall we um so uh, i started uh, trading when i was 17 which is a while back and back then i realized the news reading something the actual economy and the market can be completely different things <laughs> So here's still my is. <laughs> still is. Here's my question: uh, The pandemic's getting worse. I hate it when the news keeps adding total number of cases because to me it makes no sense. You have to track active cases and not total cases. Just nonsense. Uh, but anyway, the pandemic's getting quote unquote worse, um, and the markets don't seem to care. Uh, the U.S. markets are an all-time high. India is also going up. What's the link between the economy and the markets, Anand? Yeah, there is a two ways. I mean, I mean, in classic theory of valuing the markets, uh, it is nothing but uh, you know discounted value of all the future cash flows of the market. Uh, okay, let me explain it with this. Probably a company. It's easier to understand. Sure. See, if you look, well, if you want to value a company, it is nothing but financial security it is nothing but all the future cash flows you get out of that security and then you kind of bring it back in time to the to today's value we call it as a net present value of all future cash flows just to kind of explain if you get 100 rupees today and if you, if i tell you that you have a choice to get 100 today or you have a choice to 100 to get 100 one year later which one would you prefer so you would say listen uh i would i would like to have 100 now but if you have to give it to me one year later i would like to have 105 or 108 because you are foregoing having that 100 today we call it like you know time value for money so there are so what you what are the things that you are going to get over a period of time is called cash flows and when you are going to get it is called time period so we bring it back to the current situation that how do we bring it back is by discounting it that is we call it like for one year if you want me not to have this money you got to give me 5 rupees more for two years if you want to give it uh, not to have this money you have to give me 10 or 12 rupees more kind of a thing so that is called discounting factor now because of the fall in the global 
interest rates, this discounting factor, this expected return has also fallen. So even if you tell me the same amount of money is available, today it is worth more, same amount of cash flow is available, but your discounting factors have reduced a lot. I think that is what is the single biggest factor that has driven the market up is that market is saying that the interest rates are going to remain low. If the interest rates are going to remain low for long periods of time, same cash flows are getting discounted more uh, or the value of that cash flows have become more. That is the one way of looking at it. The other way is even if the cash flows fall, the discount rate is compensating for it. Fall in discount rate is compensating for it. So it's a pushes and pull of maybe a moderating cash flow on the top line, whereas a falling interest rate on the bottom denominator versus numerator is what is creating the market. So that is a technical way of understanding the uh, why the markets are trading at higher valuation is uh, the cost of money has really dropped because of excessive liquidity being pumped into the market. The second thing is one, one other way to understand it is that every passing month is also taking us closer to finding a solution technically. I mean, the so medically there will be a progress. Yeah, because let's say by mid of next year, there is an expected time by which a vaccine will come. Some vaccine will come and many companies are working on it. I'm sure a few of them will be moderately successful. So every passing month takes you closer to a solution. And uh, that is giving market more confidence. But you know, if there is a solution, what happens? Mm. Therefore, you don't want to miss out uh, on, on a fallen stock price for a very short, for a, for a challenge which is going to be there for let's say a year. But at the end of a year, there's going to be a solution. So I want to play that. Yeah. So many investors are also saying that uh, I will do this. I will, I will wait it out for maybe for a year. Maybe there is a vaccine trade available there. Uh, and that vaccine will make me rich as well because I'm buying things when they are low. Yeah. They're not, vaccine is not only going to cure people, it is also going to make it. So that is a trade which market is trying to play. And of course it has played it quite well now. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and I think that's the, these are the two reasons why the, the market, one is a fa falling interest rates and therefore falling in discounting rate. And second is pausing month uh, takes you closer, potentially closer to a finding solution. And this also tells us Adad, of how like optimistic everyone work from home. They're sitting at home. There's no travel. There's no boss. There's no attendance and they're saying, hmm, I've got some money. What should I do? I should, <laughs> I should probably invest. <laughs> and, you know, I think India is optimistic, right? I think that's what, what it's I showing. think many of you might have heard about this Robin Hood traders, right? Or yes. people who have, you know, suddenly there's a large retail traders have come into the market, traders, investors, whatever you call it. The reason is, you know, I think, I think that is the silver lining to the cloud and otherwise the dark cloud people have people have been sitting at home so yeah you have a platform you have access to information you have time Correct. and then all you need it is to crunch it a little bit and there is a trade available so clearly i think markets of course have been providing the much needed uh, no optimism that's right. otherwise a very challenging circumstance the real economy is very challenging i think work is challenging careers are challenging Correct. but i think some part of uh, market is of course giving that optimism 
I mean, uh, but yeah, to to kind of answer your uh, other question is yes, it is not easy, but uh, I think people are getting used to it. People are finding ways to uh, use it. I think, I think the the booming uh, boom in some of the online classes and courses is an indication that people are trying to relearn right. things, increase their skills, and improve their knowledge quotient, etc. So there are ways in which people are coping up with this. I mean, it's amazing how the economy has changed because corporate India is wearing a shirt on top, and Bermuda's down there, <laughs> and it's caused <laughs> the entire market to go up. I, you know what's yeah. interesting? Uh, I am not getting up. I, I'm just going to skip <laughs> remaining sitting now. <laughs> there is. Uh, so I mean, we're also part of the online learning boom, right? Uh, especially investing because of LearnApp. And what's happened is that previously, pre-Corona, people used to ask this question. Should I invest in the market? Now they say, Pratik, you know, the Nifty P is now at thirty-one. This <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is sort of an advanced question, and they say that's very high. So that's my next question. Uh, Nifty P is at thirty-one. That is an all-time high. I think the highest was thirty-two or thirty-three, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I also know that there was an FT uh, Franklin FT perspective stock you mentioned that loss-making companies in the index. Seem to be pushing up the P number. What does that mean, and how should a retail investor look at these hot high valuations right now? So yeah, index P is a is a let's say if you do Nifty, it is a um, weighted average P of 50 companies. Yes. So uh, so there are big companies, there are uh, medium sized companies, there are profit making companies, there are loss making companies, or not so high profit making companies in within Nifty. For example, if you take a financial stock, maybe it is its its profits are low currently. A bank, public sector bank, if you take it, its P uh, profit will be very low and P will be very high. But that is not the way in which it is valued. It is valued in a, in a, not purely on P basis. Um, it is valued on price to book basis. Similarly, if you start, if you look at uh, even a company like uh, Reliance, it is no longer trading on a P basis. it is based on some of the parts of various businesses so it has an oil business it has a telecom business it has a retail business and uh, telecom and retail doesn't make I mean, that much money as of now but they are trading on strategic value basis based on the valuation in which the investors have come into that company so yes pe is a good measure it's a quick and dirty way of understanding a business uh, it is efficient it is a democratic in the sense everyone will be able to access it therefore it is not too technical but it doesn't fully uh, capture the uh, picture per se whenever the company is going through let's say earnings challenge i mean profit challenge like in the first quarter many companies are retail companies declared losses how do you value them on a pe if someone is making uh, losses it is negative correct yeah it is negative uh, etc so there is no way it trade technically it should trade at zero but it doesn't trade at zero by those standards startups could never be valued so <laughs> yes yeah some of those companies are still uh, earnings challenged like tata motors etc right um so yeah so so therefore that average is uh, is what would lead to confusion but there are within nifty very moderately valued no companies and there are very expensively uh, or from a pe perspective what may look like an optically very expensive number now that is uh, i explained you know, there are reasons why it may look expensive but 
but then genuinely again there are companies that are trading expensive for example if you like uh, if you take some of the consumer staple companies like hindustan unilever mm-hmm. uh, or asian paints etc when i say expensive means exactly. they trade at a p higher than what they normally used to trade over the last 10 years or 15 years so it is not normal it what they are trading at is a new high mm. in terms of uh, valuation if someone is somebody says uh, hindustan unilever is trading at 50 p let's say i'm just giving an example its 10 year average might be 25 or 30 year or something like that i'm just giving uh, or in asian paints or something so when relation to its past it is trading very expensive and which is true now the the logic for that is people during times of uncertainty prefer prefer stability and certainty right and that is why they are willing to pay more for that so if you don't want to take like excessive volatility and you want to pay for stability you say like listen i am happy with i don't mind paying some premium pricing for this and that is what has worked for the last one one and a half two years is that when economic uncertainty is kept going even pre covid the economic economic growth was going down so how did people handle that situation is shifting to sectors which were not getting impacted by the economic slowdown so it is maybe consumer staples later on it became healthcare some of the pharma names also got re-rated nowadays it is technology not only in india globally we are seeing many tech companies hitting new highs the reason is people think that this is stability this is where growth is so i'm willing to be on that bus i don't mind paying a premium ticket price for that right. for boarding that bus but the thing the mind of the market today is that i want to be where the growth is so i am willing to pay premium there is one way of looking at it second way of looking at the high pe stocks is you no know, they are some of them are disruptors they are challenging the traditional businesses where the traditional ways of doing business for example an online retailer challenges than offline retailer a modern retailing company challenges the kirana shop uh, like that uh, there are n number of an online movie my uh, watching platform portal challenges uh, theaters theater chains so what happens is there is a, these people are saying this is a disrupting business this is going to meaningfully take away the market share from something else and i want to and currently it may not have earnings but this is where maximum growth will happen over the next decade also and i want to be there right kind of a thing so it is technically this is thematic investing this is not based on pure valuations alone and this thematic investing is what is gaining more and more uh, flavor and momentum and uh, uh, and with unfair and uh, many of the retail as well as institutional investors do follow that very active correct i mean talking about themes it's interesting that financials like you said did well pharma also you found some leaders do you think that the leadership mix could change over the next one or two years what do you think is going to happen there so there are uh, we call it rotation sector rotations etc sectors do rotate what was a darling at one point of time becomes untouchable in another part of time for example nbfcs were a darling for the market you know since uh, till 2018 until the ilfs crisis After happened that, just... and then the whole thing kind of uh, you know blew off a bit kind of a thing whereas healthcare was um, 
was a, a anathema. Nobody wanted to touch any of the pharma stocks because you know they were getting a lot of uh, US FDA warning letters, uh, import alerts, uh, and everyone is having challenge. So till 2018, it was the most hated sector, whereas NBFC was most loved. And then 19 and 20, it entirely inverted. Correct. So uh, and similar is with IT. and uh, maybe it will soon be with uh, automobiles or something like that we don't i mean so it is sector rotation is one way to play a game currently the most hated sector in the market is let's say financials banks no one wants to own a bank or or you know um, people are worried about owning a bank because uh, people are fearing that there's going to be npa there is a supreme court that is monitoring banks and they are putting all kinds of uh, restrictions on banks recognizing npa uh, how much interest you can charge or can you charge interest on interest all that kind of uh, thing supreme court so it is going through a period of derating because of covid related uncertainties so we do think that once this uh, uncertainties die off it will come back again but you need to play this uh, sector rotation if you want to play carefully and uh, in a very calculated manner that is one way so that is a cyclical way of playing the market sector after sector then there is a structural way where you find this business disruptors steady compounding companies which are growing at a um, good pace irrespective of good or bad times and then you have some good exposure as well again there is no one particular way normally uh, investors choose investors do mix and match of these styles and you have to know exactly what you are playing for uh, and and in, uh, and and then that would uh, that would kind of crystallize your investment thought on idea that's interesting so i my next question is going to be around this right and and the next section is on just investors um i always felt like if you look from 2000 whatever 2007 or 2000 2000 till now you will always see turbulent times it's only when you look back it feels oh that that was fine it's turbulent and uncertain now but that's completely not true right there were it was always uncertainty if you're looking for it um so now again people feel that this these are the most uncertain times etc etc how should an an retail investor look to build his own portfolio that can survive through uh, any of these times you talked about consistent compounders and a little bit about diversification so can you just rephrase that a little bit for the new investor okay let me make it simple you know sometimes people wonder why do i am coming to you guys professional investors when you are buying hdfc bank yeah. what's the big deal i can myself can buy hdfc why should i pay you a small fee for buying it the thing is it is not about buying let's say well known companies like hindustan lever hdfc bank or uh, or and then getting charged for it no it is it is a it is a right balance of mix of compounding ideas and contrarian ideas hmm. early growth versus mid, medium middle growth or mature growth companies how do you value them and therefore create a portfolio which is a good mix of young turks as well as seasoned campaigners and a guy who has got lot of into and a risk taking versus a person who is more uh, mature and more balanced the portfolio is an is a is a not only a sector diversification exercise it is about uh, 
the age of companies diversification the nature of companies diversification the nature of businesses diversification etc so anybody who is trying to analyze uh, any company should understand the role of that company in your portfolio you are not expecting something to become multi bagger you are expecting them to be steady compounders right. whereas another bunch of stocks you are willing to take a risk because you think that but you are not going to bet your house on them right because if that doesn't happen then your money goes so the framework is wherever you see risks or risk in outcomes you need to size your bets very carefully where the risks in outcomes are more narrower you can increase your bet size that's the thumb rule most investors uh, follow and it is very important for people to understand sometimes people say i found this multi bag right i managed i i made 10 times money on this company then i when i ask how much money did you invest of your own 100 then they would say i would have invested 1% of my net worth so 1% became 10% of your net worth whereas if you have invested 2% you would have become 20 if you have become 3 it would have become 30 even a 3% bet would have meaningfully improved your net worth whereas so it is not how many times the money went up alone that matters how many times the bet went up how much you bet on it also is very important i think bet sizing is very least understood again an idea within investors and um, again people have to have those buckets you bucket saying that this is a risk where i am willing to take it little more higher so portfolio managers tend to intuitively build all these things in their portfolio and give that balanced thing uh, to the to the investors so yeah during volatile times the approach should be to keep buying or buy more if you can and then wait it out again what you mentioned about uh, when you are going through it it looks like a big thing but when you are, when you look at it in retrospective uh, the market chart looks very nice kind of a thing and that is again um, this classic thing of distance brings you objectivity you got to remove yourself little bit away Right. If you are a day in day out market trader it is very tough. Yes. It is very very tough. That's why sometimes uh simple investors make more money than more complex uh, traders. That's uh, another irony of the market. I think even many mutual fund investors also are like that. But uh increasingly I think uh, the proportion is gradually only increasing. I'm not saying uh, people right. still trade even today the average tenure of investors staying in a mutual fund is only 3 years equity mutual fund which is not very high considering that there are 30 year people hold shares for 20 30 years whereas equity mutual fund they want to own only for 3 uh, years max or 4 exactly. years kind of a thing we have a very young office right so everyone in office is extremely young right so below 25 or so and uh, uh, not me i'm i'm older but <laughs> people over here and i realize that all of them say hey uh, should i buy a land and wait wait it out for 20 years uh, and these are kids saying this or can i just invest for 6 months in the stock market <laughs> and get a return yeah. uh, so i think you know it's just cult i think there's some cultural influence on asset class timing and how long you're supposed to hold it i think um, it is it is almost like you know um it is like equity means it has to make lot more money and lot faster kind of a thing and there is innate expectations of investors on that I, fair enough i think that is uh, equities do tend to give better returns over longer periods of time but it also gives a lot of volatility so it's a, it's it's a very careful game people have to play. 
also because the information, like you said, you can see it, right? I can't see the land price change on a minute to minute basis. So I just don't care. And to find the land price requires so much of effort. You just forget about it. Uh, yeah, that is a, I call that is a paradox in, uh, you know, in quantum physics called Schrodinger's cat. Yes. You, you don't know whether it is, if you keep watch, if you observe it, it may die yes. kind of a thing. So if you keep observing things, they may look more volatile. So the less you observe, uh, the volatility actually if you if you observe stock prices once in a once in a quarter they may not look as volatile whereas if you start watching them daily basis or minute by minute basis the volatility gets amplified uh, and you start feeling that so in the, in the case of land prices for example or home prices you don't get ready quotes on a daily basis or a hourly basis so you are re resigned to a particular uh, valuation in your mind i have bought it at let's say 30 lakh rupees or 40 lakh rupees is apartment. And I'll keep evaluating what is the value of it once in a year. Right. Over the next five, seven years as well. So you're not measuring it on a daily basis, weekly basis, because there's no price available. Sheer availability of price in a price daily basis messes up the mind of people. So that is a very crazy thing about equities is that Absolutely. it is liquid, it is available on tap. Yes. And at every point of time, that is a buyer and a seller. And it is a good thing as well as it is also a bad thing. Horrible thing. <laughs> throw, your, throw your phones out. Delete those apps now. <laughs> so we talked about land. That's interesting. We talked about equity. I got to talk about something, right? Gold. So uh, tell us, recently gold has performed very well. I personally never liked it as an asset class. I shouldn't be saying this, especially on a podcast, but I, sh I should be honest. And uh, I think when I got married, there's tons of gold given and it's not gold, it's jewelry. And I was completely against the idea. Now, not so much, you know, I'm thinking, <laughs> how nice. So tell us about gold. Uh, the, the audience knows that in times of recession, the first place people go is flight to safety. Um, so I know Franklin also doesn't have a gold scheme, gold scheme. So you'll be sort of unbiased. So tell us about gold as an asset class and the recent performance. First, I'm an equity fund manager, so my view on gold will be you have to take it with a pinch of salt, not pinch of gold, pinch of salt. <laughs> but the thing about gold is, yeah, um, it has a it has a certain amount of finite supply um, on an annual basis, um, and um, uh, generally it is viewed as there are two uses for financial investors for gold. Third use I will give for specific to the Indian investors. One is that uh, you know um, it is a it is a it is a fear investment. Uh, this thing when there is when there is a fear, flight to safety means people move money from risky assets to less risky assets. So every time, whether it is a global financial crisis or COVID or things like that, some part of the money which was dabbling in risky assets moved to less risky assets, and gold is viewed as less risky assets. So perception of risk determines the prices of uh, less risky assets than gold being that, that is one trade. The second trade is unlike fiat currencies, currencies of central banks, which is available in abundance and banks, uh, banks and governments create more and more currency supply, gold is available in finite sum. So what they say is that whenever there, whenever the world central banks and government tend to do this monetary stimulus, printing currencies, dropping interest rates, 
the value of the currencies goes down the value of the dollar goes down the value of rupee goes down if indian government spends a lot of money and but it doesn't have the money so it creates that money that means the value of the rupee goes down not against goes down against what against let's say another country which is not doing it against the currency of another country let's say for example uh, our nearest country let's say is uh, uh, sri lanka or something like that. if sri lanka government doesn't print currency and indian government prints lot of indian rupee then rupee indian rupee versus sri lankan rupee the value will change against the indian rupee so where similarly if you put gold on the other side if you print lot of currency the value of gold will go up so that because there is simply more money available and the value of that money against a comparable another asset is less and therefore uh, that, these are the two reasons one is the fear factor and other one is excess uh, current uh, excess monetization we call it as global excess liquidity in the system more specifically to india india used to run a very high inflation high interest rate environment so currency used to depreciate there is a theory in financial markets that if you run high interest rate economy versus another economy your currency will depreciate against that economy it's called interest rate parity theory so if uh, because then people will arbitrage if the currency don't depreciate and people can bring the money get high interest rates take it out and uh, borrow, borrow money from there invest there and make money very freely that is called interest rate arbitrage to prevent to avoid that prevent the arbitrage the currency will depreciate india was having this problem currency used to always depreciate i mean when i started my career currency was at 23 rupees or 22 rupees today it is at wherever it is 73 rupees so gold is not manufactured in india so if you want to protect yourself against indian inflation and indian high interest rates the one way people started realizing is gold protects gives you a hedge because rupee will depreciate and gold is denominated in dollars so value rupee value of gold will increase so if you per gram of gold then versus now if you look at it the real increase would have been most of it would have been because of rupee depreciation against dollar if the last 25 years if you understand the rupee compounding of gold 60 70% of the compounding returns has been would have come out of depreciation of indian rupee against dollar another 30 40% only would have come from real movement of gold gold so these are the three reasons third reason is only specific to indian investors you say your equity cio but that was a masterclass in gold that was very interesting uh so uh, uh anand why don't we move to uh, something about you personally so how do you invest personally and what is your investing uh, philosophy so i have been i have been only investing in mutual funds for more than now only mutual funds for more than 16 years now before that i used to have some stocks but i stopped buying stocks uh, directly um i've been from very 100% equity funds i have more more balanced with age um i have moderated with uh, you know about 60% of my exposure is equities versus 40 on other asset classes and uh, 
so that is my over a period of time one adjustment has made is uh, yeah proportion of equity has moderated a bit from what i save uh, uh, and uh, from where i started etc the second thing is earlier i used to do a systematic saving but nowadays i do more lump sum savings etc when i was younger i was doing slightly more systematic ones nowadays i find some opportunity and then i i wait and then i accumulate money and then i invest i know it is slightly against what we normally prescribe to other investors but that is for people who don't have time who don't have to manage things yeah. we say that just to make it a habit and then once you make it as a habit a small small amounts it kind of slowly snowballs and they won't even realize that and more third is uh, you you invest the money in the funds you manage your team manages that means you are you are it is like eating in the restaurant that you run but do you actually uh, do, do you invest in your own funds that you manage yeah me uh, most of the normal practice for the mutual fund industry or is that uh, is it rare like what do you think i think most fund managers would be following it that's good uh, i i, I they will be backing themselves up <laughs> that's good actually that's very nice and is this public information of how much i'm sorry if i'm asking this question like is it is available it, it is annually disclosed i think oh that's nice okay that's perfect uh, all right and can you tell me two investing lessons that you've learned over your career i know it's difficult to zero down on just two but can you think of two major ones one is a very easy one is that you know if you don't understand keep away which is actually though it is easy to say it is tough to follow Yeah. Many times, uh, even as professional investors, sometimes we buy or invest in companies, we, uh, businesses that we don't understand it that well. Uh, for retail investors, it's even tougher because uh, their non-understanding of business is even would be lesser because they don't do it as their career. So, but many times I have seen that the comp, the businesses that you don't understand or where you are most likely to lose money, not because. Um, not be, um, whenever you analyze where you have lost money you know that it is because you haven't understood that business the reason is uh, money businesses are volatile but uh, when something goes down only in businesses that you understand you will buy more right. businesses that you don't understand you will panic you may sell it off it may recover also but you will not have the confidence to hold on the confidence to hold on to a business during tough times Comes, uh, come, comes from the understanding that business. If right. you don't understand, you will buy when things are good, and you will sell it off when things have become bad. No compounding. There's no yeah. compound. So it becomes a cyclical behavior. Yeah. And to avoid it, only get into that that you understand reasonably. That is the uh, simple thing to follow. And uh, I think if people follow that diligently, uh, you can avoid egregious mistakes. the second thing is is a comparison uh, that is very again this is a very tricky subject one business is doing well that stock has already done well then you'll find if you may have missed it because you may not have identified it early someone else would have identified and the stock has done very well. then what you do is you find its poor cousin in the market something which looks like that smaller than that but it is saying i am also going to become like that now this is called relative value trade we call it you know you look at that and you end up by you you are looking at something very nice but you are buying something else saying that this also is going to become as good or as 
uh, as successful an investment as, as the larger one. But it's going to be faster because it's smaller. Yeah, it's smaller. And you know, now that there is a business model is established, it is only a question of following it kind of a thing. But uh, I would say it's a, uh, it's a tricky thing because for every one idea that works like that, two will not work. Mm. If you buy, let's say, a good jewelry company like Titan, and uh, you will make money. But if for because Titan is now grown bigger, you want to buy another jewelry company, and that is not grown at all. In fact, you might have lost money in that company. Yeah. So looking at a good company, if you either you love buy a very good company, or you understand the one which you are buying very well. Very, there is no easy way of uh, saying that this is made money. That means this will also make money. This I understood very early in, in some of the, one of those tech boom days when all the Infosys and Wipro was all going up. All tech companies. And are I was not having enough of them. And then I said, like, listen, the only way I can do catch up is to buy some XYZ name. And I ended up burning my hand saying that because it didn't, it was, it was never as good as the bigger ones. Yeah. Or in fact, it failed as a company. Uh, so yes, there is a, there is a risk of playing this relative value trade. So if you, it's it like, if you buy, if you like a car, good car, you buy it. If you, you buy a cheaper car, it will not be as good as that other car. You have to understand that this cheaper car is not going to be become like very unlikely it will become like that. <laughs> you may fit with better audio equipment. You may fit more uh, inside a TV, etc. But it will be not as good as the uh, as a better quality car. So we need to understand this quality differences between companies. And there are many cases this quality doesn't get bridged very easily. Mm. There are many. That is a big lesson I learned over a period of time. Of course, it's tough to follow every time. Sure. For example, if a bank has done well, you end up buying another bank which is saying that it's also going to do well. But uh, it is, it's always a struggle. Correct. Yeah, I, I think the, what you said was um, the biggest variable over here is that investing has so many variables. So many things can go wrong. The management could go wrong, right? The, the processes could be incorrect. And that's why either you learn or you just get really good managers to, to, to invest your uh, money. Yeah, investing is also fun. I don't want to take the fun aspect of it <laughs> away. You learn a lot of new businesses. For example, I didn't know anything about, let's say, Netflix uh, five years back. Today, I know what its business is, how it is making money, etc. So there's always something new to learn, something new to follow, something new to invest in. And, uh, and I think that, uh, that is very, that's a big upside of you know, tracking markets and tracking companies on your own. Even though you may not be a professional investor, but that should not prevent anyone from understanding new businesses that are coming up, good business ideas that are working well in the market. And it is fantastic to learn about them. So I guess and that's, that's why platforms good. like you learn platforms, learning platforms like you should help people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And before we leave, uh, any book you'd like to recommend, investing book that you like? Experience is the best book, if you really <laughs> ask me. There are enough. Uh, um, uh, enough books available. I think uh, in the modern days, I think um, Talib's books are eye-openers. Right. Uh, Nicholas Nassim Talib's books eye-openers in understanding risks better, in understanding the, the kind of dynamics that are working in the market better. 
so that is uh, if you are a, if you are a macro guy market person you can read um taleb kind of uh, not an easy who, read though, but oh, yes not an easy read but yeah but it 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 is the best of the lot in in the recent times at least i have read it's been there for some time now for example if you want to understand why certain companies are not as fragile as some other companies right. i would recommend that book anti fragility to understand that whereas if you are not interested in that whereas i you are you want to in, you want to understand businesses how to pick stocks early right. then you have to go back all the way to peter lynch's books and uh, figure out this is here because he has explained the most best way to buy stocks he used to kind of um, go and market see, research, see things yeah. <laughs> and uh, do it yourself and uh, and even today it works it does yes it works definitely even th- things that are good doing well as well as things that are not doing well you can identify early <laughs> you just hit the roads and you know uh, see things on your own kind of a thing so both uh, kind of authors i really like to recommend to investors who want to just understand from two perspectives how to look at markets excellent thank you so much for your time thanks pratik thanks for the opportunity and uh, really happy to be here thank you mutual funds are subject to market risks read all scheme related documents carefully please consult a financial advisor before making any investment decisions